Tonight's reading from the New Testament is from Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5. It's on page 2 of your bulletins. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. This is the word of the Lord. If you would join me in prayer as we pray for this time, and then we'll get started. Father, thank you for your word, that you care to communicate yourself to us, to make known to us your great love for us, and to change our lives. We pray that we wouldn't just be made smarter sinners here tonight but that our lives would be transformed by the power of your grace as we behold the good news in your word. So, Lord, bless your people. Take uh, my five loaves and two fish and feed them, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1963, Dr. King led the March on Washington just a few blocks from here in protest uh, for jobs and freedom. And it was in this, uh, this protest that he delivered his famous I Have a Dream speech. And in that I Have a Dream speech, Dr. King mentioned to the people assembled there, he said, we have gathered here today to cash a check. And he said that the framers of the American government through the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution had written a promissory note that guaranteed that the heirs of this promissory note would be given some rights, life, liberty, in the pursuit of happiness. But he also mentioned to that group gathered there that they were living in a tension. Because though there was this promissory note that was given to Americans, they themselves had received a, a bad check. A check that bounced, that was marked insufficient funds. Now, Dr. King acknowledged that the group gathered there as they were experiencing this tension... Uh, between a promissory note that was for all Americans and their lived reality, he, he noticed that disparity and he recognized it, that it was very possible that these folks could do what anybody would do with a check that was marked insufficient funds, that they would tear it up and throw it away. But in essence, what Dr. King says to them is pretty powerful. He says this, he says, But we refuse to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt. In other words, what he says is, I know that your lived reality right now doesn't match up with the promissory note, but don't tear up the check. And then he goes on to cast a vision of what it's going to be like on that day when they actually get to cash that check at the bank of justice. On Sunday mornings and Sunday evenings, We gather together in worship and we come to cash a check. 
When the Lord gave us his word and his story of redemption and his covenant promises, the Lord was signing a promissory note to which every Christian is an heir. And what we receive according to that promise, among other things, is joy. It's joy. But at times, our life circumstances and the circumstances in the world tend to lead us to believe that we have received a bad check. That, that somehow there is, there is a bankruptcy that has happened in the bank of joy. We, we, we feel the disparity between our lived reality and the promise of God that we can have his joy. We think we got a bad check marked insufficient funds. We experience heartbreak, disappointments, and losses. And it seems as if we're holding a bad check. Home life gets chaotic. Our marriages falter and the health of our loved ones fails. And it seems as if we're, we're holding a bad check. Our nation grows more polarized and news headlines surge with yet more victims of abuse and injustice. And it seems as if we're holding a bad check. But in our text for this evening, the Apostle John is reminding us that the bank of joy is not bankrupt because Christ has come, Christ has lived, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ has ascended, and Christ is coming back. And so what he's saying to us is don't tear up the check. He paints a picture of the future that we will experience when we finally get to cash that check together. And he wants to stabilize us to keep pressing on right now in hope. And so over this Advent season, we're going to consider through this series, Revelation chapter 21, and we are going to look at the different longings that we have as human beings and the way in which the first coming and the second coming of Jesus address the longings that are deepest in our souls. And this evening we begin with one of those deep longings, and that is joy. And so as we approach this text, look, we're going to try and see what it, what it was that John saw in Revelation 21. And if we can see what John saw, we're going to realize that joy is our future existence and joy is our present resistance. Joy is our future existence and joy is our present resistance. Those are our two points. So look at the first one with me. Joy is our future existence. Now check it out. As the apostle John was writing the book of Revelation, he was in exile on the island of Patmos. He tells us for the word of his testimony for trusting in the truth of the gospel. He's exiled. He's a, he's a political prisoner on the basis of his faith in Christ. And he's given, while he's in this exile, he's given this singular vision from God about the glorious transformation that's going to take place when God judges evil and he brings the fullness of his kingdom to a reality. And he's looking into the results of the king's return And he's out to refurbish the imaginations of God's people. Because here's the deal. Every day when we get up, 
We have, a, we have an opportunity. We have a, a choice that we make about how we're going to invest our imaginative resources. You're, ima- you're not a passive victim of your imagination. You can aim your imagination. And what we often do is we get up and we say, you know what, that meeting today is going to be terrible. My life is going to be crazy. I'm probably going to be stressed the whole day. These kids are going to be the end of me today. I, 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 you know what? I'm probably not going to be able to, to find any joy today. Today's going to be a terrible day. We invest our imaginations in this direction, but John wants to refurbish our imagination so that we invest our imaginations. We say, you know what? Today, God's probably going to be at work. God is going to meet me according to his promises. He's probably going to surprise me today with just some ray of delight that I wasn't expecting. I'm probably going to have some great encounters with some neighbors, and I'm going to work faithfully, and at the end of the day, it's going to there's going to be a feeling of satisfaction because I, I laid it out there on the field today for the Lord. It's going to be a good day. We, we are not victims of our imaginations. We can actually, pass, we can actively aim our imaginations. And so the battle for our, our lived reality is often fought at the imaginative level. And so John is addressing these friends. He wants to refurbish their imagination. While all hell is breaking loose out in the world, John would have it that all of heaven would be breaking loose in the church and that they would bear witness to the kingdom and the king who is coming. Their eyes are full of tears right now, but John would have their hearts full of joy so that they could, they could be a living witness to the fact that the king is coming back. Now, our text gives us one of the final scenes that John beholds in this larger vision. And we need to appreciate the fact that John is trying to describe the indescribable. He's trying to express the inexpressible. And so he uses this heightened language in order to try and give us a sense of what it is that he saw. And, and it's, it's, it can be a little challenge in the language that he uses. But this is a heightened imagery. He's trying to draw us in. And the people of the time would have clicked with it. But we need to think imaginatively about what it was that he saw. Because really, even if you can't get all of the metaphors that are going on here, there's one tag that you could hang up over this passage, and it, and it describes the passage. And that one tag is this, joy. What does John behold when he sees Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 5? He sees joy. But what's the shape of that joy? Listen to verse 1 again. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. John sees a groaning world give way to a glorious world. He sees a painful world giving way to a perfect world. He sees an evil world giving way to a joyful world. He sees joy. And John, in this verse right here, mentions that the sea was no more. And for some of y'all... You're like, well, no dice. I don't want to go there. I love the beach, right? <laughs> On that beach ministry, beach reach. All right, praise his name. Yeah. Now listen, listen. It's just, again, remember, it's the heightened language that John is using in this passage to give you a sense. But the sea for the people he was writing to, it meant something very different. Remember, where is John as he writes this letter? He's on the island of Patmos. What separates John at that moment of writing from the people he loves so much? The sea. 
But what John beholds in that future picture is that there will be nothing that is separating him from his loved ones. Nothing that's separating black folk from brown folk and from white folk. Nothing that's separating rich folk from poor folk. Nothing that's separating the Republicans from the Democrats. Nothing that's separating people anymore. There will be no sea, no distance between us. But that's not all that the sea communicated to them. If you read through the book of Revelation, what you'll notice is that the sea represents the source of evil and chaos. It was out of the sea that the beast came to terrorize the world. But on that day, there will be no sea. The source of evil will be addressed. There will be no more chaos. Everything that threatens the goodness and the integrity of God's created world will be no more. In their worldview, the sea represented everything that they feared and could not control. And John sees that this will be no more. This will be a world of joy because all of the things that interrupt and frustrate our joy will be no more. Nothing will interrupt. That's why our joy will begin to take off. But what else does John see? Look at verse 2. I'm going somewhere here, y'all. I'm going somewhere. I'm telling you what's in this text, and then we're going to work out the implications here, okay? Verse 2, what else did John see? And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, as John was writing this letter, the earthly Jerusalem was in ruins. It was 70 AD when Jerusalem, the city was sacked. It was destroyed by the Romans. And as John wrote this, he saw an earthly city that was in ruins, an earthly city that was in shambles, that was a heap of rocks. But he beholds the new Jerusalem. He sees a beautiful city coming down, and it's that city that stabilizes him as he beholds a ruined city. He sees this city. He says it's a holy city. And he puts it in this wedding joy context like a bride adorned for her groom. Listen, he's putting this new final picture into the context of a wedding feast, a a wedding reception kind of joyful context where there's eating and there's drinking and there's dancing and the music is going on and on and everybody's celebrating. Why? Because there are two people whose love has brought this thing together. There is a union of love. And what he's saying is putting it in the context of this marital joy. He sees a holy city, a uniquely beautified city. John sees a new Jerusalem, a city where there are no broken political promises, a city in which no lie will be uttered and no protests will be necessary and no evil words will ever be spoken. He sees a city where no shady business deals will take place, where nobody will be homeless or friendless or helpless, where none will rob and steal and murder, where nobody will be exploited and stepped on. There will be no orphans, no corruption of life, no inequality, no taxes, no broken down metro, and nobody will have to go to the DMV. Amen? Amen. That's the loudest amen I done got for some Presbyterians. You say no DMV, people are like, hallelujah. <laughs> praise his name, God. Hey, praise dancing off in here. <laughs> but seriously, 
everything about the current city that breaks our hearts and grates us and, did, and, and, and makes us recoil. All those things will be no more because this is a holy city, a city unlike anything you've ever seen or experienced. And it comes down out of heaven in a context of wedding joy. But here's the deal. The most important reality that John sees is not an absence, but a presence. Verse 3, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Listen, the great cause for joy in the new heaven and the new earth will not be the amenities. It will be the Trinity. It will be God himself. It won't be the fact that we get to fly fish in the river of life. No, it's going to be that we are present with the Lord and nothing will interrupt our, our communion with him at that time. You know, life in this world, when it comes to communion with God, it's like having a, having a conversation when you have little kids. You're trying to talk. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm. Someone's tugging on your leg. Mom, where are we going to go? Mom, I'm hungry. Mom. It's like, it's like, get your, get your. Right? That's, there's the interruption. Sin is the great interruption that tugs on us and pulls on us. And it interrupts our connection with God. But on that day, all of those interruptions will be no more. Sin will be no more. And we will behold him and he will behold us. And the smile that we sing about and we talk about and we preach about, we will actually see his disposition toward us. We will behold how it is he feels about us. It will be written all over his face that from eternity he was pursuing his people. Yes, we will behold him. It is God that is the great gift of glory. Now listen, we've been talking about joy as our future existence but you still look at me and you say, but I got to live right now. What am I supposed to do with this check? Well, well, if you listen, some of you are old enough to remember back in the day when we, when we had to deal with checks, you know, we're, we're in a direct deposit kind of culture, but some of y'all out there remember when we used to deal with checks and you know how it was back in the day. This may be the way you're thinking right now. There would be times back in the day where someone will write you a check on Monday and they say, Hey, baby, don't cash that till Friday. You know, I, I need a little time. You know, my, my checking and my savings ain't lining up right now. You know, <laughs> you, you, you would be in this situation where you weren't exactly sure if you were going to be able to get cash in exchange for that piece of paper that was given to you. But in those times where you had something really important to buy, where you had a big purchase to make, there was something called a certified check. And a certified check was guaranteed by the bank that that check would result in you getting the money that was promised on that note. And what we have from God is not the kind of check that's like, hey, wait, I don't have the money right now. Cash it later. It is a certified check, a promissory note that guarantees that we will receive the joy he has promised. Now the question is, how does that future joy back up into our lived reality right now? How does that future joy invade our present right now? That brings us to our second point. Joy is our present resistance. You may be familiar with the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer. 
But let me, let me tell you about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a little story about him. Back when Nazi Germany was taking off, Nazi Germany was trying to do what they were doing under the banner of Christianity. They were saying, as a result of our Christian faith, we are going to go systematically kill people. It sounds crazy, right? But there was a group of Christians in Germany that said, nah, we got to lean against that. We got to stand against this. This is not true Christianity. And they were called the confessing church. And one of the leaders in the confessing church that was standing against the evil, standing against the injustice of the, the Nazi regime was a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a pastor and he was a theologian. And he was teaching in an underground seminary called Finkenwald. And when Nazi Germany got a hold of, of the teachings of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, they, they shut him down. They shut down his seminary. They shut down his writing. They told him he was banned. And so in order to continue to engage with his, with his seminarians that he was teaching, he started to write these circular letters. And these circular letters would go out and they'd be passed around to his seminary students. And that was the way he would teach them. Remember, this is Nazi Germany. And this is a group of people that are standing against it at the risk of their lives. And this, in one of his letters, he writes to his students about joy. And he says that there are two types of joy. One is a false kind of joy. It's sort of like a sentimental, hallmarky kind of joy. He says, that's not real joy. And then he talks about real joy. And this is a quote. This is what he says. A sort of joy exists that knows nothing at all of the heart's pain, anguish, and dread. That joy does not last. It can only numb a person for the moment. It's like taking, going out with the girls to get your nails done to avoid the sadness for a little bit. But you still have to come back to it. That's a false kind of joy. Just getting your mind off it, just numbing you for the moment. Bonhoeffer says that's a false joy, but this is what he continues to say. The joy of God has gone through the poverty of the manger and the agony of the cross. That is why it is invincible, irrefutable. It does not deny the anguish when it is there, but it finds God in the midst of it. In fact, precisely there. It does not deny grave sin, but finds forgiveness precisely in this way. It looks death straight in the eye, but it finds life precisely within it. Do you see what he's saying? Do you see what he's saying? He's saying Advent hope doesn't lead you to avoid the ugly, painful realities of this world. Advent leads you to stare the ugly realities in the face to see Christ present there. And even specifically through the ugliness. Just like we stare through the ugliness and despair of a cross to see a resurrection on the other side. So we can stare at everything in this world that is broken and, and despair filling and, and heartbreaking. And we can have a buoyancy and a joy because real joy is looking at the world in the mode of death and resurrection. That's what real joy is. Real joy sees in every evil an expiration date and in every joy a certainty. It will be done. I'm staring at it and I see a cross. I see Calvary. I see Good Friday, but I know Easter's on the other side. That's what joy is for the Christian. And when you have joy, you don't have to look away from the evil. You can stare through it and see its demise on the other side. And that's what gives you a buoyancy. And guess what? 
If you think about joy as looking at everything in the mode of death and resurrection, you realize that joy cannot be given through the world. As we used to say back home in the black church, this joy that I have, the world can't take it away. This joy that I have, the world can't take it away. This joy that I have, the world can't take it away. Why? The world didn't give it. The world can't take it away. And that's the stubborn conviction of the Christian. Joy processes the world and all of its suffering and injustices and despair in the mode of death and resurrection. Remembering the fact that Jesus became a man of sorrows so that we could become a people of joy. That's the good news. And here's the deal. The first advent of Christ is a demonstration of God entering into the brokenness, entering into the despair at cost to himself, putting himself on the line. And the first advent should lead God's people to do the same. We enter into the suffering and despair of our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers, of people in our city. We enter in because the first advent requires this of us. But the second advent is our security that we're going to make it out. (laughs) In the first advent, Christ enters into the brokenness and despair. In the second advent, he's going to take it all away. The second advent is the guarantee that if you and I enter into the sufferings of our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers, that we're going to make it out and we just might make it out with them under our arm because we are able to bear witness to the new heaven and the new earth, to the promise of God fulfilled. Frederick Beekner said it like this. This quote is fire. Just listen carefully. Once you have seen God in a stable, you can never be sure of where he will appear or to what lengths he will go or to what ludicrous depths of self-humiliation he will descend in his wild pursuit of humanity. If holiness and the awful power and majesty of God were present in this least auspicious of all events, the birth of this peasant's child, then there is no place No time so lowly, so earthbound, but that holiness can be present there too. And this means that we are never safe, that there is no place where we can hide from God, no place where we are safe from his power to break into and recreate the human heart because it is is just where he seems most helpless that he is most strong and just where we least expect him that he comes most fully. Do you hear what he's saying? If God shows up in a manger in the least expected place, in the least expected time, among the least expected people, then you must reorient your expectations about where God will work and what God will do. If God shows up in a manger, he can show up in the ghetto. If God shows up at Golgotha, God can show up at your place of work. He can show up in your neighborhood. You can never circumscribe God's plan about where he will show up or where he will work. And just where you think he is most likely to be absent, that is the very place where he is most likely present. Do you see? This is what Advent tells us. This means that we don't have to numb ourselves to the pain and suffering of the world. We can, however, properly place 
the suffering and injustice of the world into the bigger story to which it belongs that involves a transformation. And we have great warrant to expect that God is going to work in the unexpected places among the unexpected people in the unexpected times. Our joy is the strongest witness to Advent. Joy is a defiant but God, counteracting every shade of darkness, every pain, every loss, and every ache of our souls. Listen, we shed real tears, but God is taking us to a tearless day. There is death now, but God has sent Christ to be the resurrection and the life. There is mourning now, but God will turn our mourning into dancing. There is weeping right now, but the morning is going to come and the day will dawn where all darkness will be dispelled. Listen, the evil things, the painful things, the mournful things, the dark things will one day become the former things. Do you see that's how John describes it? Do you see why he puts that little tag on it? Because he's so smitten with the scene that he sees all of the ache and the pain and the Romans ate the sufferings of this world. He recognizes are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed among us. That's what he sees. And so it's so insignificant. He just calls it the former things. And no longer even tips the scale because the glory of that day is so dramatic. Let me close with this. The testimony of the Christian is wonderfully captured in the poem of Maya Angelou who spoke defiant hope for an afflicted people. I think this is a beautiful kind of vibe of our joy and our hope, defiant in the face of the evil of this world. What I'm saying to you is your joy is resistance against the the current of despair in this world. Joy is resistance that bears witness. This is not the way it will be. And I love the poem of Maya Angelou. I think every Christian can own this saying, you may write me down in history with your bitter twisted lies. You may trod me in the very dirt, but still like dust, I'll rise. Does my sassiness upset you? Why are you beset with gloom? Because I walk like I've got oil wells pumping in my living room. Just like moons and like suns with the certainty of tides, just like hopes springing high, still I'll rise. Did you want to see me broken, bowed head and lowered eyes, shoulders falling down like teardrops, weakened by my soulful cries? You may shoot me with your words. You may cut me with your eyes. You may kill me with your hatefulness, but still like air, I'll rise. Out of the hurts of history's shame, I rise. Up from a past that's rooted in pain, I rise. I'm a black ocean leaping and wide, welling and swelling, I bear in the tide, leaving behind nights of terror and fear, I rise. Into a daybreak that's wondrously clear, I rise. Bringing the gifts that my ancestors gave, I am the dream and the hope of the slave, I rise, I rise, I rise. And God's people rise in hope, defiant 
rise in joy, defiant of the evil and despair of this world, bearing witness to the new world is, that is to come. So by all means, look at this world in the mode of death and resurrection and do not let the despair of this world to cloud your vision of the world that is to come and stand fast against the evil and the darkness for one day we will be crowned. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time to reflect on the hope of your word. And we ask that you would help us to leave here tonight with something on our souls that will nourish us and change us as we go forward from here. Lord, we do pray that you would make us a people of joy, that your joy would be complete in us, and that together as we share this joy, it would be multiplied. We pray for your grace to work this into our souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.